Chapter 1 of The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel by Thomas Erskine. Introductory Chapter Difficulties as to the Freedom of the Gospel. When we tell a man that salvation is perfectly gratuitous, whilst at the same time we tell him that unless he believes the gospel he cannot be saved, we appear to him to be saying free and unfree with one breath, and we increase his difficulties when we add, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The gratuitousness of the salvation seems altogether to vanish in the presence of these high and weighty conditions. And yet, if faith and holiness are not appended as conditions of salvation, where is their place in the Christian system? If Christian doctrine is not believed, it can be of no use, and if Christian faith does not produce Christian holiness, it can be of no use either. Are not faith and holiness, then, conditions of salvation? And if there are any conditions of salvation, where is its gratuitousness? I am well aware that there are many Christians who do not perceive these difficulties at all, and who of course are not disquieted by them. The object of their contemplation is not a theological system, but the great being whose nature and relation to us form the theme of theology, and their delight is not in the logical coherence of their theory, but in spiritual communion with him. Such persons are indeed blessed, and instead of presuming to teach them, I desire to learn from them. But there are persons of a very different description. There are many who are kept at a distance from Christianity altogether by these apparent contradictions, and there are even many real Christians who have suffered much perplexity from them. To such believers and unbelievers, I humbly offer the solution which has satisfied myself. I think that much of the theoretical difficulty on this matter has arisen from the habit of considering salvation and condemnation merely as future, and this again arises from considering them as outside of ourselves, as dependent on a sentence of God concerning us, rather than as consisting in very deed in the state of our own being. Now the Bible tells us that the kingdom of heaven is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, and it describes the future happiness as consisting in likeness to Christ. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are told that it shall be said on the last day to those on the right hand, Enter into the joy of your Lord. This shows that their joy is to be of the same nature as their Lord's. His joy on earth was to do the will of his Father. It was his meat, as he himself expresses it. And now in heaven, his satisfaction consists in seeing the travail of his soul, that is, in seeing the advancement and accomplishment of the objects for which he came into the world. Those who enter into his joy must also enter into the Savior's likeness, for only holy and loving beings could enjoy this joy. Salvation, therefore, cannot be a thing of place or time. In its essence, it must be the same here and hereafter, 
and it follows that the idea of having heaven without holiness is like the idea of having health without being well. It is a contradiction in terms. Christianity may be considered as a divinely revealed system of medical treatment for diseased spirits. Heaven is the name for health in the soul, and hell is the name for disease, and the design of Christianity is to produce heaven and to destroy hell. But what is the meaning of pardon unless there are rewards and punishments? Does not the very idea of pardon suppose the existence of law and condemnation? Yes, but the deliverance from condemnation, which we call pardon, may be understood in two senses. It may be regarded as the removal of a penalty, arbitrarily inflicted by a judge, who views the transgression and pronounces sentence against it merely in reference to its deserts, or as the revelation of a fatherly love which survives our sin and which will not cease to seek the deliverance of the sinner from the sin till, by the awakening of filial trust in the sinner's heart, the end is attained. Those, therefore, who maintain the gratuitousness and universality of pardon do not at all suppose that God is indifferent to right and wrong in his creatures, for they regard the pardon as the spiritual medicine for the removal of sin. When the apostle proclaims, as the substance of his gospel, be it known unto you, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, he adds, and by him all who believe are justified from all things, that is, they are set right with God by faith in his forgiving love thus proclaimed. Being justified freely by his grace, they have peace with him. Past sin is no longer a barrier. They can trust his purposes concerning them, and are thus set free to love him. Suppose a man were relieved from all judicial infliction, whilst the disease of his soul remained unchanged. Would he be happy? Does the misery of man at this hour arise simply from death and pain and absence from Eden? Would a healthy immortality in a beautiful garden make him happy? Would the presence of God make him happy? Alas, life itself, abstracted from pain or sickness, is often a heavy burden, and the presence of the holy God, far from being sought as a blessing, would be shunned as a curse by an unholy being. No, the misery of man does not arise merely from positive infliction and could not be relieved by the mere removal of judicial penalties. What is the misery of man? It is that his mind is diseased. He was made to regard and enjoy God as his chief object, and his faculties will not work healthfully in the absence of this object. But he has left God and wearies himself in seeking good from created things. The love of God is to the human spirit what the keystone is to the arch. Ruin is the consequence when it falls from its place. And thus we see that man's reason bewilders him, and his conscience harasses him, his imagination deceives and disquiets him, his passions and affections agitate and torture him. He has a misery wrought into the very elements of his being, independent altogether of positive infliction. This misery is rarely felt in all its force here, 
sometimes in consequence of the occupation and distraction which the mind finds in external things, it is scarcely felt at all. But when these are removed, the unhappiness is felt. Hence the horror of solitary confinement without the means of occupation. Hence also the misery of the spirit is sometimes even alleviated by external inflictions, because they draw its attention from itself. When I can lay the blame of my misery on anything external to me, there may be hope of deliverance, for I can distinguish between myself and my sorrow. But it is a terrific discovery to make that I am myself my own misery. I had supposed the source of the evil to be elsewhere, and retreated, as I thought, within myself. But the more I retreated in that direction, the more intense and intolerable the heat became. My own mind was the furnace. This is indeed appalling, for how am I to escape from myself? But how, it may be asked, is pardon to cure this misery? We can understand how pardon might remove an external infliction, but how can it remove this internal disease? I answer, the great cause of the disorder and misery which distract the human mind is averseness or indifference to God. The love of God, the keystone of the arch, is fallen from its place, and all has, in consequence, gone to wreck. The sense of sin continually increases this averseness of the heart from God, because pollution hates and shrinks from holiness, and an accusing conscience dreads avenging justice. The only cure for this dreadful and widespreading disorder must therefore be something which will replace the keystone in the arch, something which will rekindle love towards God by taking away fear and inspiring confidence. Now the manifestation of the character of God, contained in the gift of Christ, is exactly fitted for this purpose. It is not a mere deliverance from penalties. Indeed, the penalties are not cancelled. Death still remains, and man toils and sweats still on the outside of Eden. The forgiveness of the gospel meets the penalties of the law not by cancelling them, but by associating them with the purpose of a loving father to deliver from sin instead of a purpose of mere retribution. Death remains, but there is the promise of new and endless life beyond the grave. Eden is still barred, and man still eats his bread at the price of labor, but the access into the real presence of God is thrown open. All are invited and urged to come in. He hath loved us and given himself for us. The medicinal virtue of the gospel, the virtue which heals the disease of the soul, which destroys enmity and enkindles holy love, which does away with the cowardly fear of punishment and at the same time implants and strengthens the holy fear of sinning, the medicinal virtue which affects this lies in the manifestation of that love of God which passeth knowledge, that holy love with which God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son for it. Love is the great principle developed in the gospel, which reveals the union of an infinite abhorrence towards sin and an infinite love towards the sinner. This mysterious history is the mighty instrument with which the Spirit of God breaks the power of sin in the heart 
and establishes holy love and filial dependence. It is impossible to look into the Bible with the most ordinary attention without feeling that we have got into a moral atmosphere quite different from that which we breathe in the world and in which the world lives. In the Bible, God is represented as doing everything and as being the cause and the end of everything, and man appears only as he stands related to God, either as a revolted creature or as the subject of divine grace. Whereas in the world, and in the books which contain the history of the world from its own point of view, man appears to do everything, and there is as little reference to God as if there was no such being in the universe. The fool hath said in his heart, No God, we desire none, our lips are our own, we are they that ought to speak, who is Lord over us? There seems to be a general agreement to shut God out of the world which he has made, and to suppress all reports of his claims and rights and sovereign power. The old serpent who deceived our race and poisoned it in its root by that well-chosen temptation addressed to our first parents, ye shall be as gods, seems to have spoken the word into their very souls, so that it has become a part of their being, a part of their nature, which they have transmitted to their posterity. All would be gods. And men live in this lie, and strengthen each other in it, and they die in it. Nothing seems more evident, even to reason, than that a creature can have nothing but what it receives from its creator. But the pride of man's heart revolts at the idea of being a receiver. Alas, this pride is his foolishness, for it has separated him from the ever-full and ever-flowing fountain of divine love. He was formed to be a happy member of the family of God. All the members of that family are closely united to God. He is their creator and their fountain, their head, their heart. Their lifeblood is his Holy Spirit, flowing freely and fully through them. They are mere receivers, but they are receivers of God, of the love and holiness and joy of God. He is their strength to will and to do. In his light they see light, and in his glory they are glorious. He is their full satisfying eternal portion abiding in them and they in him. He feeds them with the hidden manna and gives them to drink of the water of life. His spirit unites all the members of the family to each other, and there is no schism in that body. They have all their place in him. They are all one in him and with him. They are dependent, but it is this very spirit of dependence which keeps open all the sluices and avenues of their souls to admit the fullness of God. Each is a distinct individual conscious of his own peculiar duties and peculiar blessedness, but the principle which unites him to God is stronger than the principle of separate individuality. He is more a member of God's family than an individual. And as this principle uniting him to God is stronger than the principle of his own individuality, he sees and judges and feels things in the light of God and as they relate to him, rather than in his own light or as they relate to himself individually. He is a sharer in the common light and common interests of the family. 
There is not a holy feeling in the universe to which his heart does not vibrate. He enters into the joy of his Lord, and that embraces all joys. We look at this picture from a distance and wonder at the madness of man which banished him from so fair a scene, but we need go no further than our own hearts to see the cause of this sad banishment. The spirit of dependence is lost, that open door by which God enters the heart. The spirit of independence shuts the heart against God and cuts off its supply from the fountain of life. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it, says our God, but we refuse to hearken. My people would not hear my voice, Israel would none of me. Oh, what a mass of misery was before the mind of our God when he uttered these words. They are few and simple, but they describe a madness and iniquity and sorrow passing utterance. Yet they breathe compassion, and in this lies our hope for it is the compassion of God. As the approving love of God is the light and air and joy of his unfallen family, so his tender mercies, his long-suffering, his holy compassion manifested in Christ Jesus are the only hope of return to those who are fallen. As his approving love could enter the hearts of his unfallen children by no other avenue but the open door of their dependence, even so, must his holy compassion enter our hearts. Humility is but another name for the spirit of dependence. It is the realization of our true condition before God and of our true relation to him. The world does not know what humility means. The world's humility is mere diffidence or fear or affectation, but real humility is truth and confidence and assured hope. For the truly humble heart recognizes itself as a receiver, and feels content to be so. It hears its Lord's voice saying, Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. It opens and receives the fullness of the blessing. For thus saith the high and lofty one, who inhabiteth eternity, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a humble and contrite heart, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Humility is the acceptance of the true spiritual order. It teaches the branch to abide in the vine. It restores the disordered hierarchy in the heart by replacing God upon his throne there. Humility is simply truth, and independence is nothing but a lie, honoring the branch above the vine, the member above the body, and the creature above the creator calling a stream the fountain, and a planet the sun. It is impossible that the creature can perform a single spiritual act aright whilst it continues in independence. A branch torn from the tree ceases to have its vegetable life and is no longer capable of performing the functions of that life because the sap of the root no longer circulates through it, and man, separating himself from the spiritual system, loses his spiritual life and his capacity of spiritual action, for the lifeblood of that system, even the Holy Spirit, no longer animates him. And yet, as if impelled by the uneradicated instincts of his original nature, formed for the exercise and enjoyment of spiritual life, 
he often desires and attempts to perform the functions of that life, not considering that he has cut himself off from the source, which alone supplies life and strength for the performance of these functions. A hand separated from the strength of the body, by dislocation or fracture, is incapable of doing any service to the body. Every effort to use a hand in these circumstances would be vain. The only reasonable hope lies in adopting means for curing the dislocation or fracture. Even so, man's only hope lies in his reunion with God, in his being grafted on the true vine through the spirit of dependence. Nothing done by independent human effort can have the nature of spiritual life. It is out of the spiritual order. Therefore it is that the scriptures sometimes seem to speak more of what God has done for grafting man again into the vine than of what is required from man as duty. When God has enlarged man's heart, when man has been delivered from the narrowness of his own selfish individuality and grafted on the root of God's infinite love and quickened by his free spirit, then he will run in the way of God's commandments. So long as man remains the center of his own system, it is merely a matter of interested consideration how much he should sacrifice to the will of God in order to secure himself from the consequences of divine displeasure. Such negotiation has nothing of true religion in it. There is nothing in common between such feelings and the generous, uncalculating devotedness of a child of God. It is from taking this view of religion that metaphysicians have often regarded it as a mere variety of the selfish system of morals. They suppose heaven and hell to be the great motives in Christianity, and these they regard only as reward and punishment addressed to the interested feelings of selfish hope and fear. But this is altogether a misapprehension. Selfish hope or fear may drive a man to seek after religion, but religion itself is another thing. It is the displacing of this selfish individuality from its supremacy in the heart and restoring that supremacy to him whose right it is. The moral reformations which men make on themselves, uninfluenced by the Spirit of God, are but the results of a refined selfishness. They give up certain gratifications because they perceive that their evil consequences in the future overbalance any present pleasure they can give. But the doctrine of self-denial as such is foolishness to them. They say, show us that certain privations are good for our health or our reputation or our safety, and we shall feel it to be our wisdom to submit to them. But the idea of putting down self as self is unintelligible. Yet the fall of man consists in self having taken the place of God in the heart, and the object of the Christian duty of self-denial is not merely to pay homage to God, but to weaken this usurper in our hearts, and to unbar that door which shuts God out. This leads to a true view of God's purpose in making the life of man so full of sorrow. Sorrow, indeed, cannot itself break the selfishness of the heart. Ungodly sorrow is as selfish as ungodly joy. Its language sounds more like religion than that of joy, but in reality they are not much unlike. Joy rests in the present 
while the stream runs smooth. Sorrow looks at the future, because the present is painful. It looks to heaven, because earth is darkened, and it wishes that God, or any other being who can, would deliver it from its pain. But this is still self. It is Pharaoh trembling under the rod of Moses. It is man growing out of his own root and seeing things in his own light. And so we often find that when the pain is removed, the repentance disappears along with it. When he smote them, they sought him, but within a while they forgot his works and would none of his counsel. When Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart. Sorrow alone cannot take man off his own root and graft him on the true vine. This is work for him who made us. Yet there is a great use in sorrow. It gives pause to the soul. It shows us that we are not able, of ourselves, to help ourselves, and that the creature cannot satisfy us. It acquaints us with the fact that God's way is different from our way, and presses us to inquire into the cause of this difference. And above all, it suggests the thought of prayer, because it awakens a sense of need, and thus, by the divine blessing, it often becomes the instrument of drawing wandering sinners back to God. I have sometimes been led to think that in our modern systems of religion, the relation between the Creator and the creature is too much lost sight of and merged in the particular doctrines of Christianity. No doubt it may be answered that this relation is supposed and taken for granted in all religions, but this is not enough. The creative and sovereign and personal omnipotence of God is, to our minds, the basis of deity, and the sentiment of creaturely dependence on him, which arises out of our recognition of it and corresponds to it, is the basis of religion. The doctrines of Christianity are necessary as the declarations of the character of the omnipotent Creator, but without the sense of His living reality, there can be no religion, and Christianity becomes a mere set of notions. There can be no doubt that a great deal of the Christianity of our day is of this spurious kind, or at least has a mixture of it. And there are times in which God, by his dealings with us, sends a fearful conviction of its unreality into the heart. He brings a genuine reality such as death, and sets it before us, and makes us feel how mere notions melt into nothing at its presence, and how utterly vain and valueless any doctrines are which do not unite us to God by a bond as real as death is real. The living personality of God must, if I may use the expression, animate and fill out our systems of Christian doctrine, otherwise they only tend to add a fatal security to the sleep of the soul. They may be the subjects of talk to us, as the gods of gold and silver furnished talk to Belshazzar and his lords, until some providence surprise us, as the handwriting on the wall surprised them, and make us feel and know what it is to be in the presence of the real God, whom we have not glorified. I feel persuaded that no idea of a power external to us, however mighty, can ever produce the sentiment of creaturely dependence in the heart. There must be the sense of God within us, 
as the root and basis of our being, as the continual supplier of strength for thought and action, as the fountain from which our current runs or else dries up. The Bible is full of this idea and feeling of God, subjective as well as objective. He is there not only the light which the eye sees, but he is the power of the eye to see the light. That practical atheism may enter into the profession of religion and may even become a zealous partisan of Orthodox Christianity is a fact which ought to produce much watchfulness and self-distrust. But the God who is revealed and contained in the doctrines, he it is alone who alarms and assails the independence of the natural man, when they are separated from him and his omnipotence, when they become mere syllogisms or emblazonments, they can take their place under the dark shadow of the atheism of the heart, as well as the syllogisms or emblazonments of any other science. But how different are these forms from the overawing reality with which the doctrines are animated in the Bible? And oh, how different is the effect produced by them on the hearts of their partisans from those cries and breathings of the creature after their creator, which are embalmed in the sacred record, and which still seem to ascend to heaven like incense from an altar. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Thy hands have made me and fashioned me, Give me understanding that I may keep thy commandments. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. I am thine, O save me. Happy spirit, thou hast found thy fountain. Thy cry enters with acceptance into the ears of the Lord of Seboath. When thou saidst unto me, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Surely this sweet communion between heaven and earth is true religion. Oh, for the putting forth of that power which made the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak, that such sounds might enter our hearts and draw forth such answers. To a spirit thus bound by a real bond to the living God, life and death are equal, for it finds the will of God in either and in his will is its delight. It finds God in everything, and God is its portion. When Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, it answers, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. This is to walk with God. There is something inexpressibly mysterious and solemn in the relation of the creature to the Creator. There is no parallel to it in the universe. When I think of it, I am overwhelmed by it. I am unable to conceive how I have the consciousness of a separate existence distinct from my Creator. It seems to me that I am in regard to Him as a ray of light to the sun, proceeding continually out of His substance and having no individuality of my own. We are apt to lower our idea of this relation by comparing it to the relation between men and their works. The potter forms the clay into a vessel, and that vessel is then completely independent of him. It does not require his thought or power to uphold its existence. 
and thus we are prone to think of God and his works as if they could exist independently of him. But there is a vast difference. The potter merely takes advantage of the laws of nature, which are in continual action independently of him, and, as it was by the application of their power that he fashioned it, so they uphold his work after it is finished. Thus, in fact, the potter creates nothing. He only changes the position of the clay. But the laws of nature are the continual actings of God. There is no power in the universe but his, and where his power is, there is he. He made the clay and sustains it with all its qualities, whatever form may be given to it, and the cessation of his will that it should exist would be the cessation of its existence. The course of nature, the elements, the order of events, the existence and movement of all matter are the direct actings of God, and are not the existence and movement of mind, too, his actings? Surely it must be so. My will is the sustained creature of his will from moment to moment, incapable of a single act without power communicated from him, and yet I am conscious that it works contrary to him, and that it is morally responsible for so doing. This is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain unto it. O Lord, thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. With what feelings ought I to regard him, to whose infinite mind my individual existence with every particular of my history through the future eternity has been from all past eternity a distinct and familiar idea? It was a birth of his mind from all eternity. At length he realized it by calling me into life and giving me a substantial existence, and he has ever since sustained this life by his continually pervading presence in every part of my soul and body. I have never been a single moment separated from him. It is impossible that I should be separated from him without ceasing to exist. I have never been alone, and I know that through eternity I shall never be alone. I am sure that I have never formed a thought, nor uttered a word, nor done a deed, of which he has not been most intimately cognizant, and in which he has not been himself the acting power enabling me to think, and speak, and do. And here is the great marvel. I am conscious that these thoughts and words and deeds have been full of sin, and yet my conscience acquits him and lays the undivided blame upon myself. Who can solve this difficulty? What an unspeakable relation is this, and what an infinite possibility of enjoyment arises out of this perpetually pervading presence, seeing it is a presence of infinite holiness and love and beauty and wisdom. It seems as if he were too near me to see him, as the eye sees not itself, yet I feel assured that until I see him and feel him in his perpetually pervading presence of infinite holiness and love and beauty and wisdom, I cannot have that good for which I was created. His presence is my real home 
and my real portion, and until I become sensible of it, I am without a home and without a portion in the universe. It is appalling to know that there is a being so near me, surrounding me, and inhabiting me, and yet that he should remain unseen and unknown by me. And is it not still more appalling to know that in this being and his relation with me is treasured up a possibility of good beyond utterance and beyond conception, and yet that I may have no part in it? Alas, that I should have a sense which informs me of the presence of material light and makes it a pleasant thing for me to behold the sun, and that I should have no sense to inform me of the presence of the light of life and to give me joy in conversing with his brightness? The spirit of dependence is the spirit of religion, and the spirit of independence is the spirit of atheism and idolatry. Footnote. At first sight, it appears remarkable that the Bible should at the same moment charge men with the guilt of idolatry and of atheism. It would seem impossible that the same individual should be guilty of both. Atheism consists in having no God, and idolatry seems to consist in having too many. But in fact, there is no God in idolatry any more than in atheism. The notion of various independent powers, which is the spirit of idolatry, is the spirit of atheism. God is the one power which does all things, and the one fountain from which all things flow. The course of nature and providence, the course of life and being, are the actings of that power, and the streams from that fountain. The spirit of religion goes directly to this first cause, seeing, acknowledging, and feeling it in all things. It regards second causes, whether they be the elements of nature or the actions of men, as mere channels through which this first and only cause operates. It stops not at them. It regards life as a holy thing, flowing out of this fountain and returning thither. It lives and moves and has its being in God, by the spirit of its will, as well as by the necessity of its nature. The spirit of atheism and idolatry alike stops short at second causes, seeing independent powers in everything, and itself claiming independence. It acknowledges that there are powers stronger than itself, as one man is stronger than another, but it regards existence as its own possession, though liable to be invaded and affected by superior powers, and on this possession it can stand and parley, and make conditions with these powers, whatever they may be. End footnote. This atheism of the heart, then, this insensibility to God, this blindness to his direct actings, this spirit of independence under the influence of which we live surrounded by God and sustained by Him, and yet entirely unconnected with Him in spirit and desire, this being the evil to be remedied by Christianity, does it not seem most reasonable to expect that there should be in the remedy an especial putting forth of the direct agency of God, and that He should reveal Himself through it in such a way that the soul may know and feel that it is God of a truth 
that worketh, and none other than he. The branch separated from the vine cannot graft itself on again. If it could, the order of nature would be subverted, and man separated from God cannot, according to the order of a higher nature, again unite himself to God. Indeed, this appears to me so full of the highest reason and evidence that I should consider the great purpose of Christianity absolutely defeated were it possible for man to become a Christian by his own unassisted efforts or without a conviction of the necessity of divine assistance. Nay, it would be an absurdity. It would be teaching the spirit of dependence by an argument for independence. It would be leading man to repose his all on God by showing him that he could do without God. The true state of the creature is a state of absolute dependence on the Creator, and when he has left his true state, he can only be brought back to it by him from whom he has wandered, and by a way of absolute dependence. All the messages of God to man have related to this way of return, and have been filled with the most urgent calls to come back by it, and the most solemn warnings against refusing the voice of him who speaketh from heaven. All these messages have been messages of love, and man needs such a message, for his conscience testifies against him, and tells him of his sin, and of God's just displeasure at sin, and thus forbids the spirit of confidence, while at the same time it commands the spirit of dependence. Therefore the gospel is indeed a welcome message, for it tells of the love of God to sinners, of his having provided an atonement for sin, and of his open arms ready to embrace all who come to him through this atonement. The knowledge of the grace of God through Jesus Christ converts the dependence of necessity into a dependence of love, and thus grafts man into the true vine. End of chapter 1